uh, the book of James. I would love for you to turn there, if you would. James is in the back, not the very back, but it's on back there. So it's, remember Chris Berman on ESPN, back, 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 back. If you're turning, just go back, 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 back. Some of you don't turn anymore. You just punch it in or whatever you're doing there. But James is toward the back. If you have a black ESV study Bible, page 1010 or 1011 is the page number. We're going to start, of course, in James chapter 1 in a little bit. We'll read James 1 through 12. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. We start this series called Choices, What to Do When You Don't Have a Clue. I, really, to me, it wasn't perplexing yesterday at Smoothie King. I know that I didn't want to bulk up. I didn't want to hulk or activator or gladiator or shredder. Um, I needed a lean one, right? I need to trim it up. And, but we have really big choices in front of us today. And I hope James will uh, today and these weeks speak into that. Last Saturday, I was driving by just across the street here on Old Canton Road. And a friend of mine who attends our church, he was sitting out front on his steps, on his patio there, and he had a book. And he was reading that book and he just seemed all relaxed, which was good because I'd driven by a few hours before that and there were like three cop cars out in front of his house. And you know, it's kind of funny as a pastor, you know, what do you do when I see cop cars at your house? Right, you're a part of our church, but you got three cop cars. What does the pastor do? Just drive by, right? Drive by and pray. I'm not meddling in your business, right? I called several people, hey, pray for so-and-so. They got some cop cars out in front. Put it, on the, put it online on the prayer request, right? So-and-so, first name, last name, three cop cars. I don't know what's going on. I know we need to pray for him. I saw him at church the other day. By the way, when I drove by, I shouted at him. This was a few hours later when it was just him and a book on his patio, front porch. And I said, hey, man, relax. Just relax. Don't worry. And he's like, oh, he kind of gave me the thumbs up as I drove by. He, told, he saw me at church a week ago Sunday. He said, man, thanks for yelling, don't worry. Thanks for yelling at me, relax, when you drove by because we were broken into uh, this weekend. This is the same friend who uh, a few months ago, a tree fell on their roof. So he was telling me last Sunday, man, I needed a message on anxiety of not worrying, of trusting Jesus. Sometimes God's word can be very timely for us, can't it? And I believe because we're looking at such a practical book, this book of James, that it can speak into every heart here. Let me ask you, what's the road laid out before you? What choices do you have in front of you? Over these weeks, our teaching team, led by me, we're going to tackle some of the big uh, passages here in James. We're going to look at some choices that James lays out in front of us. What, what do you do? What do you do when life hits you hard, when temptation turns up, when religion goes wrong? What do you do when judgment jumps over mercy, when faith falters, when our words wound? What do you do when hearts start to hate, when your goals are not God's, when wealth seems worthless, when waiting is work? And we'll be looking at these ideas. Now, just a little bit of background before we look at the text. James, there's several, in fact, there's five, um, my study showed that there's five Jameses in the New Testament. By the way, anybody old enough to remember a TV show called James at 15? Anybody? No. Seriously, did you watch it, Scott? All the time. All the time. Okay, we'll talk later. We'll talk after church because it's just me and you, bro. <laughs> How lonely do you feel? I'm standing up here, man. I feel lonely. There used to be a show called James at 15. In the New Testament, there are five Jameses. Three are pretty prominent. There's James, the son of Zebedee. He was one of the 12 disciples and the first to be martyred. There's James, the son of Alphaeus. He also was one of the 12. And there's James, you'll get this, the, jo the son of Joseph and Mary, the half-brother of Jesus. 
And it appears that that's the James who wrote this book. I bet more of you, um, only Scott and I remember James at 15, but I bet some of you remember a show called Dragnet. I'm just throwing it way back in the past. The LAPD detective show, there was a sergeant named Joe Friday. Anybody remember? And he, he had a saying, just the facts, ma'am. Some of you do that. Guys in particular, we're bottom line people. When, when people start verbally going all over, we're like, tell me, tell me, tell me. I do this at home sometimes to my demise, but just give me the bottom line, just the facts, right? And Joe Friday, when someone would start talking about a lot of stuff, he just wanted to know what was pertinent to the case so he could solve it. Just the facts, ma'am. James is sort of the Joe Friday, the dragnet uh, police detective of the New Testament. He doesn't get uh, into a lot of theology. He really talks, it flows theologically from who God is, who he's created us to be and desires us to be, but it's just really practical. There are five chapters in James, 108 verses, 55 of the verses contain imperative verbs. In other words, do something, do something. He doesn't care so much about your profession of faith as he is concerned with your practice of faith. James, half-brother of Jesus, just like Jesus. Jesus really cares about what we do with what we learn. I just ordered a book this week. It's called Moving Toward the Mess. It's the, the, the fix for the boring Christian life. That moving toward the mess, the ultimate fix to the boring Christian life. Sometimes I find myself bored. Probably shouldn't confess that. Sometimes I stagnate. Sometimes it gets dry spiritually. I know that's true for you, and I really know it's true in the American church. We can grow bored. But this author has a big premise in the book. He talks about our pension, our desire for comfort. Look at what he says here. If we insist on comfortable, then boredom is inevitable. And I think James is going to tell us as we walk through this book this summer, man, it's not about your comfort. And if you are, let me say, following Jesus is not boring. If you're bored, you're not following Jesus. And it's easy for us in the American church especially to say, well, I'm just, I'm not getting much out of it. And if you scratch beneath the surface, when we talk about church life, if you scratch beneath the surface, you'll see that we're really comfortable people. In fact, we're worshiping at the altar of comfort. You scratch below the surface of that American churchgoer sentiment, and you'll see that sometimes we think, well, it's, it's, it's a new church. It's another church to get new information, and that will enhance my Christian experience. But too often, more often than not, we're not doing anything about what we're learning. Jesus, the master teacher, the greatest storyteller of all time, tells the most famous story ever told in Luke chapter 10. And he says, it's, it's called, known uh, by all, as the story of the good Samaritan. Remember the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, they, they're walking on the road, they see someone in need, and Jesus tells this story, it's multifaceted. And he tells this story that we ought to stop and we ought to look for people in need and we ought to go out of our way. We ought not to live for our comfort and our convenience alone. But when he told the story, what did Jesus say? He said in Luke 10, go and do likewise. Go and what? Go and study, go and talk about it. Go talk about how you're not getting much out of it. Or did he say go and do? And this book, I've just read the preface, but this book, Moving Toward the Mess, The Ultimate Fix for the Boring Christian Life, he talks about when you follow Jesus, the first mess you move towards is your own. 
And can I tell you, when I'm dealing with the messy stuff in my life, when I'm walking the road of pain, of, of confession and repentance, it's not boring. And the stakes are high. And it's invigorating because of the good grace of God. It's very invigorating. So I go to my messes and I go towards the messes of others. We're going to learn that about James. In fact, he talks about when religion goes very, very wrong. And when religion goes wrong, it's when we're talking a lot about it. When we come to church with a consumer mindset of what we can get out of it, we're bored with our spiritual existence. We're not moving toward the mess. We're bowing at the altar of what is comfortable. And so I hope. I hope, I know it's a summer season, pastors hate summers, attendance goes down, giving goes down, hint, hint, don't do that. But pastors hate, preachers hate summertime, right? But I hope this summer that you can be here or listen online, and I hope in a way, and I say this out of love, the love of a pastor's heart for you, I hope you're disturbed. I hope your feathers are ruffled, that your cage gets rattled a little bit, and then you'll move away from some of the things that are causing you to be comfortable and thus bored in your walk with Jesus. James chapter one, you knew we'd get there. James one, one to 12. You ready? Page, is it 10, 11? Did I get that right for those of you who turn there? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Much in this passage, I really want to focus on the verses two, three, and four. It tells us James here, the half-brother of Jesus, is writing to uh, predominantly the people of Israel, the Jewish people who had accepted Jesus, but they were scattered. They were scattered because of economics, because of political persecution. And that's rarely ever a good word, right? To be scattered. We want to be gathered. We want to be close to one another. We want to be sharing in Christian love and unity, but they're scattered amidst some really hard times. And he's writing them to say, here's some things that you need to really know as you're dispersed. They're in the dispersion, the ESV says. That's not a club or something, the dispersion. That's just a reference to the world. It's the Roman and Babylonian world and outside of there. He says, count it all joy. Why? Because we're going to have trials. We're going to have hard times. Everybody here agrees that life is going to hit you hard. That's the very sermon that if you want something at the top of the page, that's what we're talking about today. What do you do when life hits you hard? Sometimes life is the broken things. The, the, the trials in our lives are the broken things. Several months ago, I, I got in my truck and tried to start it. It wouldn't start. I needed the battery to be jumped off. And for several weeks, that's what I would do if I needed to. I would just recharge or try to recharge the battery. I took it to my friend at the Chevron station. He and I are becoming friends because I drive an old truck that's paid for. And he said to me, hey, 
that battery is, it's tired and worn out. You need to face reality. It's time for a new battery. I've got a tire that I keep trying to reinflate. And that, that same friend at Chevron told me, hey, Robert, that tire, that it's tired and worn out. It's time to face reality. You need a new tire. A couple of mornings ago, I was having coffee with my wife. I had too little sleep and too much coffee, and she was looking at me with that look. I said, babe, what are you thinking? She said, Robert, you, you look tired and worn out. I said, I don't like where this is going. <laughs> what do we do? What do we do? You know, to me, it's not that big a deal to realize that I can't just keep recharging a battery or reinflating a tire. But what about when the broken thing in life is you? What, what about when it's me? Ernest Hemingway said the following. Sooner or later, the world breaks everyone. And those who are broken are strongest in the broken places. Now, can I ask you, is that good or what? Let me ask you a deeper question. Don't lie in church. Do you believe that? Do you have a testimony of that? How about Hemingway? He, like you, he wanted to believe it. I mean, I want to believe that because I got broken things. And I want the things that are broken to grow back stronger with the healing hand of the great physician, my savior. For Ernest Hemingway, the pain was too great. He wrote that. He submitted it to all of his readers to say this is something true about life, but ultimately the pain became too great and he thought that his brokenness couldn't be made stronger and he took his own life. There are broken things, broken people. There are unexpected detours. I'm, I've told you I'm going old school today. How about Gilligan's Island? You guys know some Gilligan's Island? You got, you got the skipper. You got Gilligan, my favorite part always, every episode, Gilligan would say something, do something stupid, the skipper would take off that hat and slap him around with it, right? And then you had the professor and you had uh, Marianne and Ginger, okay? Fellas, right? Marianne and Ginger. Just keeping it real in church. They went on what? A three-hour tour, a three-hour tour, but the weather started getting rough, right? The tiny boat was tossed. Some of you know the lyrics to this song. And I was always amazed that this three-hour tour turned into years. And they, they were stranded, marooned on this deserted island, yet they enjoyed gourmet meals. They wore clothes that looked like they had just come from the dry cleaners, but they couldn't fit, fix a patch in the side of the boat. But for us, this silly sitcom that, was, that came out in the 60s, it demonstrates something serious in life for us when it comes to trials. Because for some of you, your trial is that very thing. It's an unexpected detour. Where you are today is not where you intended to be. I'm not talking about Fonda Church at 1045. I'm talking about something else, something that you know about that probably I don't. Maybe the person next to you knows about. Or maybe it's your own secret. Maybe you're here today and you say, hey, this is just not, this is not what I had planned on. This, this boat wrecked. This ship landed here and it was not my intention. There's a Psalm, Psalm 119 in verse 25. And he writes at a low point. In fact, he, one translation shares that. He says, 
I got low in the dirt. I, I, I lie in the dirt. I'm discouraged. I need to be refreshed. This is Psalm 119 and verse 25. I believe that's the New Living Translation. I lie in the dust. This is a grown man. Some versions say the dirt. Who goes and lies in the dirt? Kids lie in the dirt, right? Boys look for the dirt. Adults don't go to the dirt. This is his way of saying, I'm in a place that's very difficult. I'm very discouraged and I need to be refreshed. My prayer is that these three things that we're gonna look at in a second real quick from James chapter one can be some refreshment to you. And I pray that it's not just some beautiful, earnest Hemingway statement, but that you and I, that we can really see it as a part of our existence. We can buy into it. We can believe it. It can affect us. He says, James here, says, count it all joy. The first thing I wanna to submit to you today is that we're called to have a radical attitude in our trials. I thought about softening that a little bit, but I like that phrase. David Platt didn't, didn't, uh, didn't monopolize that word, but a radical attitude. Count it all joy. The translations of those words, that first word it comes across as count, consider, regard, reckon. Reckon is probably not a good word for us, right? Southern folks, uh, we, we reckon a lot of things. You go into the game this weekend, yeah, I reckon. You gonna go see mom and them, yeah, I reckon. Coming to church, yeah, I reckon. But consider, count, regard, those are probably the better translated words for us. And it's not a subjective feeling, it's a volitional, willful decision of I, I desire this to be true. I'm gonna count it as a fact, just like you get out a calculator and say, I'm gonna punch this, I'm gonna, I'm gonna accept this as a fact. I'm gonna take this from God as his word and I'm gonna count, I'm gonna consider, I'm gonna regard it all, all joy when we encounter, when you encounter these various trials. C.S. Lewis called joy the serious business of heaven. If you wanna know how your soul is doing, you can gauge your quotient of joy. I believe that. Jesus teaches us that we can actually go through hard circumstances and that we can have a joy. And I just don't, I say this a lot, I probably say it too much, repetition age learning, but I just don't meet many people my age who aren't angry, bitter, and cynical. And the joy quotient for middle-aged men and women is really low. And for some of you, you sit here and you say, I can't count it all joy. Joy is so elusive. It's something that you're struggling to even believe in, much less experience in your own life. Count it all joy. Joy is the serious business of heaven. Jesus wants to give you joy. Look what he said in John 16. So with you now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Jesus knew what he was saying. And the disciples, to some extent, one who wrote this letter, James, to some extent, they understood it. We're about to go through something really, really hard. And I want to give you a joy. What's the last line say? That no one, no one will take away. Do you believe today that there are some people in your life or trying to wedge their way in your life and their purpose is to take away your joy? I, I believe that's very true. 
When you follow Christ, you put yourself out there. And some will want to take away joy. Life itself will want to take away your joy. And Jesus is saying, my joy can be real. It can be complete. It can be full. It can be yours. Nobody can take it away. Look what he said in John 7, his high priestly intercessory prayer. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Not all the circumstances will line up and life will be a string of blissful highs and an ending happiness. Jesus didn't say that, but he said that they may have the full measure of my joy, not circumstantial joy or happiness, but my joy, the full measure of my joy within them. Now I want to say, I want everybody to hear this because there's two verses that we read in this first part of James chapter one that can be real, really misunderstood. The first, one of them is James chapter one, verse five. Got an open Bible, look there. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God and God will give to all men generously. Doesn't that sound too easy? I mean, that messes me up a little bit because oh, oh you're, you're, you're facing a choice that's beyond just what flavor of smoothie you're gonna get. It's a big choice. Oh, just ask of God. If you lack wisdom, just ask God and God will give to all people generously. That just seems too easy. But again, these verses, like all verses, need to be taken in context. James is saying that God will give you wisdom. He wants to help you choose between life or death, flesh or spirit, wisdom or folly, anxiety or prayer, fear or faith. He wants you to make the right choices on the things that really matter. He wants to help you in your decision-making process. But James 1 tells us that wisdom is hard won. And wisdom comes through walking the road of life and going through the trials when life hits you hard with broken things and unexpected detours and whatever. That's where you and I can learn the wisdom. I don't like that, but you know what? I'm not God. I want to be sometimes. I'll argue with him about who should be God, but I'm not. Another verse that can be misunderstood is this verse, chapter 2. This, how can we have a radical attitude? How, how can we do this? Count it all joy when you encounter these various trials. Here's what he's not saying. He's serious about joy, but he's not saying, put on a happy face and pretend like you're not hurting. You don't get that. Can I say that? You don't get that. Now you can get that in some small groups. You can get that in some churches. You can get it from some pastors who've packed stadiums and sell books, but that's not the Christian walk. When Jesus showed up to be with his friend Mary in John chapter 11, Mary was at her brother Lazarus' death. And she was weeping. And what did Jesus do? Jesus wept. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7, I was reading it this morning. It tells us that our Savior, when he was going to the cross, that he, uh, he greeted that with prayer and supplication, with weeping and loud anguish. Romans 12 tells us, we talk about being an intentional community. We're not going to be a healthy church, a functioning church, unless we're in circles together, living out what the scripture teaches. And it tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that when we go through hard times, in fact, Hebrews 12, it's pretty painful because it says that God doesn't just allow some hard things in our lives. He causes some hard things in our lives. It's called discipline. And in that, it says in Hebrews 12, no discipline seems joyful in the moment, yet sorrowful. For us, the church, we need to learn the full expression of emotion that God has for us. So do you hear me today? Count it all joy does not mean put on a happy face and act like it doesn't hurt. Don't pretend. In fact, if anything, we need that. This week, probably on Tuesday, I'm going to send an email 
uh, to our church. I'd love for you to read it. It's just um, 16, maybe 17, I'm still writing it. 16, 17 things I'm praying for our church. One of the things, of course, we're praying for, I think you're aware of this, is we're praying for a worship pastor here. But I'm praying more than that is for a worshiping community. And more than that, I'm praying that our songs would teach us biblical praise, confession, and lament. In fact, I want us to have an opportunity to learn more about that word lament and what it really means. I'll say it for here and now that it's real people going through real grief over real problems. And it's where we need to grow as a church. Count it all joy. I'm going to say it for the third time. It doesn't mean put on a happy face and pretend like it doesn't hurt. But we do need to adopt this radical attitude in verse 2. Count it all joy. The second thing that I have in bold print that we need is a reassuring truth. We need to live according to this reassuring truth. That what? That the testing of your faith, it produces endurance or steadfastness. God wants to do a few things if you look at his word. He wants to teach you, he wants to train you, and he wants to test you. Here's how I've responded to that emotionally. God wants to teach me, cool. God wants to train me, mm. God wants to test me, Ugh. Teachers, when they want a student to grow, they don't give them the answers, they give them a problem, right? A train left leaves Cleveland at 3 p.m. in the afternoon going 50 miles an hour, right? They give you a problem. And so too does your God. Proverbs says this. We'll wait on it. Did we put it? I might not have put it in. The crucible, I think I know it by heart. The crucible is for gold. The furnace is for silver. So the Lord our God tests our hearts. You hear that? The crucible is for gold. The furnace for silver. But the Lord our God, he tests our hearts. Years ago, I dug this up when I was studying for a series in 1 Peter who, like James, uh, understood the refining fire of trials and hard times, who talked about rejoicing greatly, how God gives us a joy unspeakable. The world doesn't understand it. And he talks about this refining fire. You see, gold is extracted from the earth. It's put in a crucible. They add lead and they turn up the heat. And what happens? Gold that's extracted, that's put in a crucible, added with lead, heat turned up, impurities come up to the surface. And a goldsmith, just picture a pool boy, you know, with a, skimming the surface of a pool, getting some stuff out of that pool. And that's what a goldsmith does with the impurities. In fact, it's called, our English word for that is called crud. How beautiful is that? In other words, do you get the idea from Proverbs? The Lord tests our hearts and he relates it to gold and silver in the crucible, as does Peter is that God, God wants to turn up the heat. God wants to add something so that things that aren't pure, th some impurities and some crud will come to the surface and be removed from your life. Do you believe that? God will add something. God will turn up the heat so that something else will be removed from your life. It's a reassuring truth because what James is saying that God wants to produce in you is something really good. So I don't think we really count it all joy because we're having trials. 
I think we count it all joy because these trials can produce a steadfastness and an endurance in our lives. In a way, all of life is a test. How are you doing? In a way, all of life is a test. How do you respond when you're being interrupted or you're not getting your way or you're being disappointed or getting criticized or having to wait? All of life is a test. And your God and mine says that we can count it all joy because he wants to produce something in us, a radical attitude, a reassuring truth. And thirdly and finally, there is this uh, refining process that we need to lay hold of. The refining process, what God wants to produce, it says there, and it uses some words in the English translations that can be misunderstood. It says that so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, how many of us are perfect today? How many of us act like we're perfect sometimes, right? That's a different story, but none are perfect. No one in here would make that contention. No one would raise their hand and say, I've got it together. But this idea is one of completeness. God wants to add to your life. He wants to give you all that you need. He's got a purpose. Now, ultimately, when we get there, we're going to be perfect. Last Sunday, we baptized Jenny right here, and we mentioned that, Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you, he'll perfect it. He'll complete it to the day of perfection. There really will be a day of perfection. I know Jenny. Trust me, she ain't perfect, right? But there will be a day of perfection. And anybody that gets baptized, and for some of you, that's your next step spiritually, is to get in these waters with me or one of our pastors and say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, my risen Lord and Savior. And your testimony will be, I believe that he started a work in me by faith in his grace and that he wants to complete that. And there will be a day of perfection. But I think what James is saying is there's an ongoing level of maturity in your life. You're gonna be bored if you live for comfort. And you're gonna be bored if you're not growing. For some of you, what you don't need is to podcast another preacher or attend another church or sign up for another Bible study. James will tell you, you need to do what you already know to do. You need to see that lived out in your life. I wanna add a last R because we're rolling with the alliteration thing here. I just write the word relationally. I don't have a symmetrical thing, I didn't have time. But just write the word relationally because James says to, the, to my brothers, he uses the word brothers many, many times in, in this five-chapter epistle. And several times he uses the phrase, my beloved brothers. I think when he's writing, he's saying, in order for us to have this radical attitude, to have this, believe this reassuring truth, to enter into the refining process, it needs to be done relationally. If you're gonna count it all joy, well, no matter what trials, the various trials that you go through, knowing that, that that produces steadfastness and endurance and it'll have its perfect and complete work where you'll be lacking in nothing. For you and I to believe that, I'm convinced that we have to live this out relationally. A few years ago, I was watching the documentary on ESPN because I'm a man and that's what men do, right? And I was watching this documentary on ESPN and thank God there were some Kleenex in the room. And it depicted two young men who were best friends. They were high school wrestlers at a high school in inner city Cleveland. And one gentleman named Leroy Sutton, back when he was 11 years old, he was walking home from school one day close to the train tracks. 
And he slipped on some loose gravel and he fell and remarkably and tragically his backpack got stuck in the, in the, on the railroad there. He couldn't get up. And that day, this 11-year-old boy, Leroy Sutton, was run over by a train. Both legs had to be amputated, one right above the knee, one right below the knee. Um, another young gentleman, the Canyon Crockett. He was born with a very rare eye disease. He could basically just see only a few inches from his eyes. He didn't have parents growing up. He scoured the streets, lived off the streets at times, couldn't eat. And these two gentlemen, um, they became friends. Little did they know that they would meet up at the same inner city high school and they would rely on each other. And one carried the other. 170 pound wrestler would carry him everywhere. And he would carry, uh, he would carry him and the other one would, would tell him where to go. They shared in their struggles. They learned about their trials. And sometimes I think for the church, I think we have it this way. We have a fatal attitude, a defeatist attitude, and we say, well, I can't see, or I don't have any legs, I can't help. But the church, when it's functioning the way it should through trials, is when we say, hey, I can't see. Hey, I can't walk. Well, I'll carry you, and you tell, you tell me where to go. And that's the picture of the church. And as I watched that night a few years ago at this ESPN documentary, and I was wiping the tears away thinking this is the picture of the church, not nice, shiny, spotless people who pretend through the Christian life. But we walk together. And the very thing that's so hard for you could be the very thing that God uses. You know what Galatians 6, 2 says in one translation? It says we ought to share our burdens and our troubles. We ought to share them. That ought to be the church. This ought to be lived out relationally. Would you pray with me?